Hoffman. Uh, all of those songs are good preparation for us to, to hear God's Word today. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 today. Last week, Pastor Joe filled in with very short notice, did a great job of preaching 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I am, as always, super thankful for him and also for Pastor Dylan. It's good to know that when something comes up, last minute, when something goes wrong, FBC continues along without missing a beat. And while I was at home last week, I tuned in and I watched on Facebook Live. Um, and, and here are a couple of observations from that experience. First, I'm super thankful that we had the technology to broadcast what is happening in this room to any living room in the country via Facebook Live or the radio. That's a, that's a good, good thing. I was able to worship even while I was in quarantine, right? And uh, I, I found one thing really interesting. There were, there were a couple occasions during the music where uh, the camera was like shaking. Um, and, and I thought, man, surely the, surely the volume is not so loud that the bass drum is shaking the camera all the way back there. And so I did a little investigation this morning and realized uh, that if you sit back in that area in the sound booth or just in front of it and you get really into the worship and you stomp your foot or you pound your fist, uh, it shakes the camera. And so it was this, this moment where I was trying to figure out what's going on. And now that I know that that's what's happening, like, I think it's a good thing. Continue. Uh, by all means, continue to stomp your foot or to pound your fist. Um, it gives people at home a little bit uh, of, of the, everybody's looking back here. Who's doing this? It was Doug. I'll just go ahead and say it. It was Doug. <laughs> uh, it, it gives a sense of what's going on in this room, which leads me to my second observation. I'm really glad to be back in the room this week. My experience last week made me long to be back with you in the flesh. It's just not the same when you tune in uh, on the radio or on Facebook Live. It's just not the same to watch from a distance, to sing along. Definitely not the same to sing along uh, on my own um, from a distance. Uh, it's definitely not the same to listen in from a distance. So here's what I want to say. If you find yourself for any reason unable to be here, whether it's because of COVID or some other thing, if you find yourself for some reason unable to be here in this room, by all means, tune in. If you're able to tune in, tune in. But make every effort as soon as possible to be back here, to be back here in this room, gathered with these saints. It's different in the room. It is better in the room. So make every effort to be here. Back to 1 Peter. Back to 1 Peter in the task at hand. This is rich stuff, is it not? Like super rich text. I mean, we are moving pretty slow, but we could move even slower than we are moving. There were phrases in the text last week that we could explore, phrases that we could meditate on, phrases that we could celebrate for months or perhaps even years. For example, last week in verse 3, we are taught that God caused us to be born again. God caused us to be born again. We read that and we think immediately of John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in the dark that night as he told him, you must be born again. The doctrine of regeneration is amazing. The doctrine of regeneration is humbling. The doctrine of regeneration gives us a sense of security even as it helps us circle back to the focus of the passage in 1 Peter in worship. As our hearts cry, in light of regeneration, in light of him causing us to be born again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. That's a phrase that, that can occupy our attention for a long time. Or 
consider the paradox that is found in in verse 5 when it says that we are protected by the power of God through faith. Protected by the power of God through faith. What a thought. He keeps us by his incomparable power. Who has more power than the Lord? But the mechanism of his keeping us by that power is faith. Faith that is a gift from him in the first place. I think if we spend some time thinking on that for a while, you may land exactly where John Piper lands in application when he says, we continue to trust the one who keeps us trusting. We keep on trusting the one who keeps us trusting. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that he is involved even in our trusting of him. My point is, it's rich. And each of those phrases could occupy our attention for weeks at least. Pastor Joe did a great job of getting the gist of the whole section last week when he spoke of Peter's pastoral heart as he encouraged his readers to, quote, keep their eyes up. That was a really good line from Joe, and he said it multiple times. Keep our eyes up and focus on the privileges that are theirs in Christ. We need to do that too. Peter is saying that to his original audience. Keep your eyes up and focus on the privileges that are yours in Christ. We must also keep our eyes up and focus on the privileges that are ours in Christ. And then I loved at the end when he said, And then we let it rip in praise as we bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't hold back in praise when we contemplate on these things, when we consider the privileges that are ours in Christ. What can we do but praise him? What can we do but bless his name? Amen? Last week was an elevating message. This week is different. It has a different tone. It covers a different matter. I was reading an article this week by C.S. Lewis that I thought was completely unrelated to my study of 1 Peter, and I was wrong. It's completely related to my study of 1 Peter. And at the end of this article, C.S. Lewis said, Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. The cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. True story. True story. Tomorrow is Monday morning, and the cross does come before the crown. And part of Peter's design with the soaring thoughts from last week was to give his people and to give us a vision that would sustain them when the troubles come. And troubles do come. Troubles do come for them. Troubles do come for us. And so we thank God for 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'm going to read today verses 3 through 12 in reminder to you that that's really one long run-on sentence. In the original language, verse 3 through verse 12 is one massive, complex, brilliant sentence. We split it up into multiple sentences in English, but it is one complex thought in the Greek language. We're going to focus our attention on verses 6 and 7 today, but I want you to see it all so that you know where we've come from and where we're going. Let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been distressed by various trials, 
So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of the crown. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for our new birth. Thank you for the living hope that we have through Christ's resurrection. Thank you for the inheritance that is reserved for us. Thank you for your powerful protection of us. All of these promises are sweet, and we bless your name for every one of them. And we need you to remind us of this as we encounter various trials here. We want to rejoice, even as we suffer, knowing that the pain is only temporary and it is not without purpose. You have a good design in all of our difficulties. Father, there are deep truths before us today, some of which challenge our preconceptions. We need your help to receive these truths in such a way that they help us endure, help us persevere with joy until that day when we stand in your presence and see your face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So because we're only going to cover two verses, I had intended initially to cover four verses today, but there's so much in these two that we're going we're gonna to take these two this week. We'll get the next two next week. We're going to look at it pretty closely. Look at verse 6. The beginning of verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. This here is a reference to all that Pastor Joe covered last week. All of those promises. All of that hope. All of the protection by the power of God. And we rejoice over this. That word rejoice or some form of the word rejoice is found all throughout this passage. You see it all over the place. And here, in this instance, it is in the present tense, which indicates an ongoing action. This is important. It could be translated, you are continually greatly rejoicing over this. This is not just we rejoice when we get together on Sunday morning. We rejoice at the moment of our conversion. We rejoice when we experience some special presence of the Lord in our lives. But no, we continually greatly rejoice over this. And this rejoicing should be the mark of our lives. It's not just when we are pondering the promises of God, but rather we go on rejoicing even as we face the fire of affliction, which we will face. And I'm convicted as I study this text, as I think on this text, I am convicted that my life is not marked by rejoicing as it should be. My life is not marked by rejoicing as it should be, especially in seasons of trial, in seasons of suffering. Edmund Clowney said, dramatically, Peter moves from ecstasy to agony. Peter is now dealing with the heart of his concern in writing this letter. He wants to assure Christians of their hope as they face trials. 
This is a big part of what this whole letter is about. It's a big part of the whole context of his writing. He is writing to chosen ones, right? The chosen ones who are exiles, who are scattered abroad. This is the tension that Peter is writing into. Remember the wide world of sports? When I, when I was a kid on Saturday morning, ABC would have the wide world of sports, and they would have this opening scene where you would see somebody scoring the, scoring the last goal in the Olympics to win the game, right? The thrill of victory. And then they would have this clip of this guy coming down the ski lift, the, I mean the, the ski jump hill, and he would crash at the bottom and arms and legs flying, and they would say, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And we f- I feel like that as we, as we move from verse 3 uh, to verse 4, or, or rather verse, verse 4 to verse 5, I feel the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat because he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Every word and every phrase there is super important, so I want to look at them really closely. Not in the order we find them, but I want to look at them really closely. First phrase is various trials. Circle that, think about it, various trials. NIV says all kinds of trials. And I think it's a really good thing that Peter here speaks of various trials. He doesn't narrow it down to the specific trial of a specific believer in a specific time and a specific place. He doesn't narrow it down like that. A great deal of time and attention is spent by scholars trying to recreate exactly what was the specific suffering of Peter's original audience, right? And that time and energy is well spent because it helps us understand the text. But friends, we cannot limit the principles of this text to that suffering alone. We cannot limit the principles only to Peter's original audience. Peter doesn't even do that. He speaks of various trials. So the principles here in the text apply to us. These principles apply to us who, according to every scholar on the planet, are experiencing way different trials than the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia in the first century. Our trials are way different than theirs, right? They were at least socially outcast, if not systematically persecuted. Our trials are way different than theirs, right? But let me ask you, what are the trials you are facing right now? What are the trials you are facing right now? What are the circumstances in your life that are testing your faith? What is causing you distress in your life right now? And I would, I would venture to guess that even in this room, various, various trials... What is testing your faith is different than what's testing your faith. What is causing you distress is different than what's causing you distress. Even within this room, there are various trials, but the principles here apply to all of them because he's talking about various trials, all kinds of trials. These principles apply to you, to me, and to the trials that we are facing. Various trials, he says. He also says that you are distressed by various trials. That word distressed is important. ESV and other translations say grieved or suffering grief. We're going to talk a lot today about the purpose of our trials. We're going to talk about how our trials are temporary. We're going to talk about how they have a purpose, but that doesn't take the sting out of them. They distress us nonetheless. They grieve us nonetheless 
and they cause suffering. I want us to acknowledge, I want us to admit that there is real pain here. Real pain that we cannot avoid. And some of us are experiencing that pain in big ways, even this morning. Some of us are overwhelmed, even, by the pain of our suffering, even in this moment. And yet, we were just told that we are continually rejoicing. Continually rejoicing, and yet grieved by various trials. How can it be? How can it be at the same time? Wayne Grudem says, Peter thus shows simultaneous grief and joy to be normal in the Christian life. Simultaneous grief and joy, normal in the Christian life. Grief arises because of many difficulties encountered in this fallen world. But faith looks to the unseen reality behind this present brief existence and rejoices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul describes the servants of God as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You find yourself there? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Well, I'll be honest. Like I said before, I got sorrowful down. Like I'm a regular expert at sorrowful. I'm a regular expert at grieved. Joy seems elusive. And yet that joy, according to the text, is to be the mark of my life and not the sorrow. Joy is to be the mark of my life and not the sorrow. Why? Why should joy be the mark of my life and not sorrow? Why should joy be the mark of my life and not grief? Well, this text also teaches us that those various trials are only now and for a little while. It's only now and for a little while. Oh, praise the Lord for this good truth, right? Praise the Lord that it is now for a little while that we encounter various trials. We are grieved by various trials. The trials, the grief, the pain is temporary. It's only now and it's only for a little while. And I have told you before, and I will keep telling you as long as I have breath, friends, it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. A different day is coming. A new day is coming. A better day is coming. A day where there is no sin. A day where there is no darkness. A day where there is no sorrow. A day where there are no trials of any sort. A day when we will dwell in the very presence of the Lord forevermore. It won't always be like this. A better day is coming. The season of trial is only a season even if it's your whole life. The season of trial is only a season, even if it's your entire life here. Does not James teach us in verse 14 that we do not know what our life will be like tomorrow? We are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Our life is just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The season of trial is only a season, even if it lasts your whole life. Trials are only for a little while, unlike the inheritance that Pastor Joe taught about last week. Right? The season of trial is temporary, unlike the inheritance that Joe talked about last week that is eternal, right? It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is reserved in heaven for you. It is kept for you. It will last forever. This season of trial will not last forever. Tom Schreiner says, believers rejoice despite suffering because they know it will not persist forever. Aren't you thankful for that? Like in the midst of your grief and sorrow and pain, in the midst of trials, it not it good to know that it won't last forever? I think it is. 
remembering the temporary nature of these trials and the eternal nature of our joy will help us have joy even now. It'll help us have joy even now, but it gets better. Look what else it says of these trials. It says in the text, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, let's focus in on that idea of necessary. And I'll be honest with you, this is tough. It's tough for us to think about. It's tough for me to speak about. Trials are necessary. Trials have a good design, a good design from the Lord. We're going to look at this design a little more in a little while, but for now, I want to say to you that trials actually come from the Lord. Trials that grieve us. Trials that for are for a little while come from the Lord. They are necessary. R.C. Sproul says, These afflictions were sent upon the believers by God. God uses the iniquitous, that is, sinful afflictions brought about by human hostility for the ultimate well-being of his children. He's speaking here specifically of the persecution that Peter's original audience was experiencing. God uses that affliction wrought by human hostility for the ultimate well-being of his children. In this text here, we see the marvelous reaffirmation of the doctrine of the providence of God. I told you a while ago that, that we think about the doctrine of regeneration and, oh, it's sweet and it's encouraging and it's humbling and it gives us a sense of security. We also want to think about the doctrine of the providence of God. And we love the doctrine of providence when everything falls in our favor. We speak of God's providence when everything goes our way, don't we? We get, we get the best, we get the best uh, parking place at Walmart and we say, the, the Lord has provided, right? We, we, we get... All green lights as we go through Carbondale. And we say, isn't the Lord good? Look what he has given to us. We speak of God's providence when we find the keys we've been looking for for 10 minutes. We acknowledge God's providence when everything goes our way. But God is also every bit as much in charge of providing delays. He's every bit as much in charge of providing difficulties and frustrations and griefs and pains for our good. Let me give you an example. That stoplight at walk and roll is the providence of God. And I dislike it. But it is the providence of God given for my sanctification. If nothing else, the safety of traffic or anything else, that thing exists by the providence of God for my sanctification to teach me patience. Think of the story of Joseph in Genesis. You know the story, right? In fact, if you're on the same reading plan that I'm on, it's like right around the corner for us. It is coming up in the next couple days. You know the story of Joseph in Genesis, how he is loved by his father more than all of his brothers and therefore hated by all of his brothers. His brothers planned to murder him. They had set their minds to murder their own brother because of his father's great love for him. They were going to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. Right? Like that's better. They sold him into slavery. And in the home of his master where he was sold, he's falsely accused by his master's wife and he ends up in prison. He's going to be murdered, sold into slavery, ends up in prison. This guy can't catch a break. And yet, he ends up second in command of Egypt. He's able to plan ahead 
for a famine that would spare not only the Egyptians among whom he lives, but it would spare his own brothers as well. You know that story, right? If you don't know it, you need to read it. Later chapters of Genesis. Toward the end of that story in chapter 45, listen to Joseph. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me, as they came to him begging for food. And they came closer, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father of, a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Like, Joseph, in the midst of all of his difficulties, in the midst of all of his suffering, in all of the affliction, in all of the trial, he is able to say, the Lord provided this. The Lord did this. The Lord brought me here. And he was able to see that good thing that the Lord was doing even in the midst of his difficulties. Joseph was able to see that. And no doubt it is that understanding of the providence of God, even in the midst of his difficulties, that sustained him through the suffering, right? He says the same thing in chapter 50 as he deals finally with his brothers. He says in verse 20, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You Intended, designed evil against me in this. But God meant it for good. God intended, designed, purposed good in the same thing. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I want you to see that Joseph understood that the suffering, the trouble, the trials he had experienced had ultimately come from God and had a good purpose. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. The suffering and the trials that we experience come from God and have a good purpose. That these trials are part of God's design for his people is seen later on in 1 Peter. This is not a one-off concept that Peter drops and then walks away from. No, it's a concept that he understands and carries through the letter. Look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you want to flip over there or look on the screen. Chapter 4 verse 19, he says, Therefore... Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. Suffer according to the will of God. It's a hard thing to swallow, right? It's a hard idea to accept. Piper says the trials that we experience are not coincidence. Trials are not random. They are necessary. That's the word Peter uses. They are necessary and come from the hand of God with a purpose. They come from the hand of God with a purpose. I realize that what I've said just now doesn't land easily. I just told you that the trials that you're experiencing come from the hand of God. But let's look at the rest of this text and let's see the design of these trials and then ask ourselves, who desires this? Who desires that our faith would be proven? Who desires that our faith would be purified? Does the enemy desire that? Absolutely not. He desires to destroy us and consume us. Who desires that our faith be proven? The Lord does, right? The Lord does. So look at it in verse 7. The design of these trials. It says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's some principles from this text. Number one, trials prove faith like fire proves gold. Trials prove faith like fire proves gold. If you have some gold that is of questionable purity, questionable value, you put that gold into the fire and you melt it down. And that melting down in the fire separates the valuable and precious gold from the less valuable and common elements like copper or zinc that might be mixed in. And refiners in this process would scrape away all the copper and zinc and other elements and call it dross. They would remove it. But the only way to get rid of the dross, the only way to get rid of the impurities, the only way to get rid of the common things is through the fire. David Helm says, trials come for testing. And testing, like putting gold into the fire, is meant to prove the genuineness of one's faith. To put it differently, trials are the proving ground for our faith. To say it a third way, trials help us see what we're really made of. And who would want that? The Lord would want that. The Lord would want to refine your faith. The Lord would want to prove your faith to you. To encourage you in your endurance. Karen Job's says, however, the joy of knowing one's ultimate eschatological future, that is the end times destination, not make the distress of one's current circumstances any less real or disquieting. Their trials are presented explicitly as a testing so that their faithfulness to God in any and all circumstances could be proven to themselves and to others to be the genuine type of faith that will result in eternal glory. That's God's design in our trials. That those trials would prove our faith to ourselves and to others that it's genuine. And this is not just Peter's concept. Isaiah speaks of this in chapter 48, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Peter speaks about this again later on in this letter. Again, it's not, a, not an idea that he drops and walks away from. This is consistent throughout even 1 Peter. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing had happened. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you to test you. The fire of trial purifies and proves the believer's faith. So let me ask you again, who would design such a thing? The devil? No. The Lord would design such a thing. People who think that all pain, all grief, all trouble comes from the devil are missing out. People who attribute all of those things to the enemy are giving him credit that he does not deserve. These tests are from the Lord and are intended to prove your faith. That's application number one, sort of. Trials prove faith like fire proves gold. Number two, proven faith is more precious than gold. Proven faith is more precious than gold, the text says it. For a long time, humans have valued gold. We have built entire societies and economies around the value of gold. The History Channel has a show that I am obsessed with called The Curse of Oak Island. I'm obsessed with this show. It's in its ninth season, and these two brothers have invested millions of dollars 
digging on an island in the North Atlantic for gold that was evidently buried 200 years ago. Millions of dollars they have invested in this. It's in its ninth season, and I cannot wait for Tuesday night to see what they're going to find. And you know what they have found so far? Nothing. They have found nothing. They found a little lead cross, and they find in every episode chunks of wood, and the narrator says, could it be? Could it be that this chunk of wood is from a massive sailing vessel that's full of, of Spanish gold that is sunk in this, in this uh, marsh? Could it be that this little piece of metal is part of a treasure chest that it contains valuable treasures from the ancient times? It's incredible, and I'm absolutely hooked on it. They get all excited because they find the most minute trace of gold in the water that filled some holes they dug five years ago. I'm obsessed with this because they are willing to go to great lengths to potentially find some gold. But proven faith, this text teaches us, real faith, strong faith, Tested faith is more valuable than even the purest gold. And that is God's design for the trials that we face. To make our faith pure. To prove it to be real. To make it strong. And to show that it is of great value. Therefore, those trials are precious. Because they lead to this outcome. So, you can rejoice even in the midst of them. If you know that it's a test intended to prove and purify your faith, then you can face it with great joy, knowing that it's headed toward this outcome. That's what James talks about in chapter 1, when he says, Consider it all joy. It's the same idea that Peter says. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have it, perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Proven faith is more precious than gold. That's number two. Number three, proven faith is imperishable. Proven faith is imperishable. Pure gold, refined gold, is a pretty durable material. But it is not an eternal material. It will eventually perish. When we were talking about faith, when we are talking about faith, we are talking about eternity. And we saw that last week with Pastor Joe. He talked about the inheritance that is forever. He talked about the keeping power of God through faith that lasts forever and ever. Proven faith is not only valuable, it is imperishable. And proven faith, here's the last one. Proven faith leads to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that in the text? Proven faith leads to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is super interesting. When I read that phrase, my default is to think that this is praise and glory and honor to the Lord at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and ultimately, that's what it's all about, right? That's, that's what everything is about, the glory of God. But there's another facet of this that I think the text is pointing to. I think this text is making a reference to the glorification of believers whose faith has been proven through the trials. I think he's talking about praise and glory and honor that come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ because our faith has been proven. John Piper says, the glorification of the saints is a pervasive doctrine in the New Testament. And he's right about that. But it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about the glorification of saints, that God would praise us, that God would honor us, that God would, that God would glorify us somehow. It seems all backwards, like it, it gives me the creeps to talk about that. And it did the same thing in Revelation, if you remember. 
In Revelation, as we were studying through, we saw all these promises that we will reign, that we will sit on thrones, that he will give these things to us. And and it's like, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about giving him glory. But friends, as he does this to us, he gets the glory ultimately for it, right? Because where did the faith come from? It came from him in the first place, right? It didn't come from you. It came from him. 1 Peter chapter 5, later in this letter, he talks about this glorification of the saints when he talks about this. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You will receive, he's talking there specifically to elders, but I think it applies to many believers. He says, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. When you think about the crown of glory that is unfading, who do you think wears it? We don't often think about us wearing that crown, do we? And yet the Bible speaks of something like that, that we will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now, ultimately, it's for him, but he gives it to us. Similar thing is spoken of in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, when it says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And listen to this last phrase. And his praise is not from men, but from God. His praise is from God. This picture of God praising His people in some way. We see a similar idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is really parallel to what we're talking about in 1 Peter. When Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Look at verse 17. For momentary Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In this article that I read earlier this week by C.S. Lewis that I thought was not at all about 1 Peter, the article is called the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis focuses in on the image of a child who delights in being recognized by his father, who delights in being praised by his father for his obedience unto his father. And and we can relate to this, right? Who who didn't love to hear one of their parents say, nice job, You're, you're doing so well. I am proud of you. That's a good thing. Like we delight in that, right? But who who ultimately gets the glory in that situation? The kid? The kid who's obeying his father? No, the father is the one who ultimately gets the glory. But this is talking about the glorification of the children in the process. Maybe we can most relate to it in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells that parable about the faithful servants and the the unfaithful servant. They were given a certain amount of talents and they invested them, right? And over and over, he says to the ones who invested the talent and grew it and brought it back to their master, the master says what to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Well done, good and faithful servant. And how many of us are longing to hear the Lord say that to us on that great day? Well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that's what this text is talking about. When it says when it says that these, this may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is him saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We long for that. And he only says that to the ones whose faith is proven, whose faith when tested and tried in the fire is proven to be genuine. He says it to the faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But all of this glorification of God's people is ultimately a glorification of himself because it's all about him, right? It's glorification as a result of the faith, faith that is in Christ alone, faith that is a gift from God. And Peter ties these two concepts together, the glorification of God and the glorification of God's people by God. He ties them together at the very end of this letter when he says in chapter 5, after you have suffered for a little while, after you've suffered for a little while, right, that's a test of your faith, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, right? That sounds like praise and honor and glory. He will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But verse 11 says, to him be dominion forever and ever, amen, right? To him be glory ultimately forever and ever, amen. These two things go together. And when our faith is proven, tested by fire, proven and purified, results in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Edmund Clowney sums this up really well when he says, Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and they drive us to a savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. And so, brothers and sisters, when we are distressed, when we are grieved in various trials, we must rejoice. We must rejoice because we know that the Lord is doing something good through them. We rejoice because we know the Lord is doing something good through them. That pain has a purpose, a purpose that cannot be accomplished apart from the pain. And I think you know this as you look back on your life. When have you learned the most important lessons about who God is? When have you learned the most important lessons about who you are in light of him? It's in the suffering. It's in the trial. It's in the pain. David Helm talks about this implement that was used in ancient times to separate the wheat kernels from the rest of the stalk that was gathered in the harvest. He talked about this implement that looked like a heavy wooden sled, right, that we would use in the snow. And on the bottom of this heavy wooden sled, they would implant these sharp pieces of flint, hundreds of these sharp pieces of flint that would protrude out of the bottom of this sled. And so when the harvesters went out, when they went out to gather in the wheat, they would cut down the whole stalk and they would bring it back to the threshing floor. You've heard people talk about this, right? And for some grains, they would just beat the, they would beat the grain with a stick and that would help separate what was good from what was bad, right? But with wheat, they had to use this implement and they would pile up the big pile of straw, right, that had the wheat still in it and they would, they would drag that heavy, sharp implement around and around, around and around on that wheat. Why? To inflict pain upon it, right? But that pain was not without purpose. They intended to shred that wheat so that the grain would fall out and the grain would come loose. What was the farmer's purpose in doing that? It was not to kill the thing. It was not to destroy it. It was to reveal what was useful in it, right? This guy, Helm, says, So Peter wants to remind you that no thresher ever operated the tribulum. That's what they called that implement, the tribulum, from which we get our word tribulation. 
He never did it for the purpose of tearing up the sheaves. The thresher's intentions were far more elevated than that. The farmer only wanted to cull out the precious grain. And so he says this, So be encouraged. You may find yourself on the anvil of suffering, but God is at work. He is testing the genuineness of your faith, and for him, that faith is of eternal value. So, when you are distressed in various trials, rejoice, because you know that the Lord is doing something good through them. But I want to tell you that that perspective does not come naturally. That perspective on your trials, that perspective on your suffering will not come naturally to you. You will not feel your way to that conclusion. You will not stumble upon this, especially as it is happening. You will only have this perspective on your suffering if you get it from the Word of God. If you get it from the Word of God and you trust what He has said to you. And so, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, you need to get your nose in the book. You need to spend some time in the Word. Reed Roper this morning when we were talking about this said, You cannot read the Bible and not see this. You cannot read the Bible and not see that God uses the suffering of his people to prove their faith. It's absolutely everywhere from cover to cover, and he's exactly right. And so when you are in the midst of those trials, get your nose in the book. Spend some time in the word and spend some time with the church because there are dear saints in this room that have experienced pain that you cannot imagine. There are dear saints, brothers and sisters in this room who have walked through fire that you could only dream of. And they can speak to you of God's goodness in it. They can speak to you of his good purpose through it. So spend some time with one another, talking with one another. Watch as their faith has been proven, tested, purified, and know that the same will happen with you. So don't run from your trials. Don't run from this suffering. Don't run from grief and affliction. Don't run from the fire. Rather rejoice. Rather trust him so that you can grow through those experiences. We, we were talking this morning. I think Pastor Dylan said something like this. He said, oftentimes when we experience suffering and pain and trials, we say, why is this happening to me? As if, we're somehow above, as if we somehow don't deserve suffering. We often say, why is this happening to me? It's okay to ask questions when you're suffering. But your question should be, why is this happening to me? Not why is this happening to me, but why is this happening to me? Lord, what are you teaching me through this? Lord, what are you stripping away from me through this? We sing a song. Man, we sing it, we sing it pretty often. It talks about, he, he is the wind in my sails. And every time we sing that, I'm just crushed by it because I can get a phone call and I would say to anyone, that just took the wind out of my sails. That person and their criticism, that person and their whatever, that person in the whoever, it, it, it took the wind out of my sails. And when we sing that song, I realized if they were the wind in my sails, it was the wrong kind of wind. Like if they took the wind out of my sails, it was not the Lord who was filling up my sails. Why is this happening to me? Lord, what are you teaching me? Lord, what are you stripping away? Don't run from your trials. Don't run from your suffering. Run to the Lord in the midst of it. But listen, this of course has only been for those who are already trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Like we can have that kind of perspective on our trials. 
But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you can't have that perspective. But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and you find yourself suffering today, you find yourself grieving today, maybe the Lord is using that to bring you to himself in faith. I think a lot of our brothers and sisters would say that I came to faith in the Lord, that the Lord drew me in through a painful season, that the Lord brought me to life from the dead through a painful season when I had nothing, I had nowhere to turn and could only look to him. So if you find yourself in that brokenness today, turn to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about a season of intense pain in his life. And he says, it was designed to teach me not to depend on myself, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, only God can raise the dead. Only he can make you alive. And he does so by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So repent. Repent and believe today and be saved. One of us pastors will be glad to talk to you more about that in just a minute. And I want to be, I want to be honest with you, and transparent with you. As I look at the various trials in my own life right now, I look at this text, I feel like the father of that boy in Mark chapter 9. That boy had a demon that tried to throw him into the fire, that tried to kill him over and over and over again. And that father begged Jesus for help. And in the process of begging Jesus for help, he said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I feel like that today. I believe that this pain is temporary. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe the Lord has good design for my pain. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe that the day of glorification is coming. Lord, help my unbelief. Why not be real visible to the people around me that I believe the things that I know to be true? And I want it to be. I want it to be obvious. Let's stand together and pray. Father, there are deep truths before us today, and they do challenge our preconceptions. So we need your help to receive these truths in such a way that they help us endure, that they help us persevere with joy until that day when we stand in your presence and see your face. That day when when we sing about your worth and your greatness and your glory forevermore, which is also the day when we hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, until that day, refine us, purify us, test us, prove us for your own sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.